Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's edition of the Lone Star Podcast. This is Pastor Trey Graham in Texas, and I'm talking to my friend Rabbi Dove Lipman, who lives in Israel, but right now you are in Uganda in Africa. What are you doing in Uganda? You know, it's interesting. If you study the history of Israel, there was a period of time where the countries of the world were thinking about offering part of Uganda to the Jewish people for their homeland. That's not why I'm here. But there's no doubt that it occurred to me as I've been traveling around here, my goodness gracious, can you imagine that someone somewhere was actually considering this instead of our biblical and ancestral homeland? That, that's, that's thought one. Thought two, which I have to mention before I explain why I'm here, was the incredible feeling as the plane landed in the Entebbe airport. And my mind immediately shifted to 1976 when a plane was hijacked and Jewish passengers were separated from the non-Jewish passengers and held as hostages here in the airport of Entebbe. And the Israeli leadership decided to do the most daring raid, I must be in world history that we know of, and flew planes into the Entebbe airport from Israel. Commandos, the soldiers came out and rescued uh, the people. And I thought about that. I just thought about the miracle of what happened in that place uh, as we landed here. Before you go forward, maybe our listeners don't know the actual story that one of your Israeli commandos was killed in action in that incident, and he has a rather famous family name. Yeah, Jonathan Netanyahu, we call him uh, Yoni from the Hebrew Yonatan. The older brother of our Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was the uh, leader of the the commander of the elite commando unit. That was the unit that stormed the uh, terminal here first. I got to look at that terminal uh, from a distance. Sadly, he was killed here. There were some other people also who were killed uh, during it, but for the most part, most of the passengers were freed. Together, by the way, I should mention with non-Jewish, the staff of the uh, the pilot and his and his uh, crew from the plane chose to stay with the Jewish people, even though they were allowed to go free, which is an incredible act of unity and responsibility. But yes, on the one hand, incredible miracle, incredible celebration when all these passengers returned from Uganda to Israel, and sadness when they were accompanied by the body of, of, of Yoni Netanyahu as well, that's for sure. Now, you are there for a very special project. What's the purpose of your trip there? So I serve on the executive team of an organization called Innovation Africa. Innovation Africa uses Israeli technologies to bring clean water and electricity to people uh, living in Africa. Uh, Many of the listeners might not know this, but 300 million people in Africa live without access to clean water. 600 million people live without electricity. And I'm here actually visiting the villages, seeing the poverty with my own eyes, seeing the lack of hope with my own eyes, and also seeing how we've transformed that by giving electricity to schools, electricity to medical centers, and clean water that's pumped through uh, solar technology 
that can service thousands of people. It's the most incredible thing to see how lives can be transformed with just you know simple ingenuity, if I could call it that, simple desire to help using this technology that we have in Israel and sharing it with the world. And it's a joy. It's a joy. It's a pride. It's an honor to be involved with the organization, but to be coming from Israel and to see firsthand how it's uh, improving the lives of, of so many people. Now, to make one spiritual point here, we often talk about Genesis 12.3, and basically the foundation of your friendship and my friendship is Genesis 12.3. And the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, I need you to get up, the guy later known as Abraham, I need you to get up and leave your father's house and go to the land which I will show you. And we know from studying our Bible, he's in modern-day Iraq, and he ends up in modern-day Israel. But Genesis 12, verse 3, the Lord says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course, we as Christians see this as a spiritual promise that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob eventually lead to King David, which we believe eventually leads to the family tree of King Jesus. And so spiritually, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. But in this case, technologically and using solar panels to bring electricity and bringing fresh water, we're seeing a physical and an earthly manifestation of Genesis 12:3 going on. That's correct. And, and, and the people, it's very interesting. Most of the villagers are Christian. They have such a faith in God such a connection to the Bible, love the fact that we're coming from Israel. And I, I feel like we're living that verse and also the prophets uh, in terms of being a light into the nations. Uh, in, in this case, literally providing light, but just in general, being able to shed the light that we have and are blessed to have in Israel with the nations. And I have to tell you, Pastor, being here, seeing the happiness. We were part of a celebration of a water project uh, that was inaugurated. Seeing the, the the thanks and the gratitude that people have that they have access to water. Something we, we all take for granted. We just turn the tap. We have water throughout our day. And to remember that water, water is the greatest blessing we could have. And, and to really refocus in on the blessings that God has given to us. It's been a blessing for me to experience this and witness this and be able to come home with those feelings and emotions. The project, again, is called Innovation Africa. The website is innoafrica.org, I-N-N-O-Africa.org, and I encourage our listeners to visit there. And Rabbi, before we get into the parasha in just a moment, if our listeners visit the website and they want to get involved, I'm sure they can donate money, but what other ways could they help with this project? Certainly, uh, there are Adopt-A-Village projects where it doesn't have to be just an individual going on the website and donating, but they can actually talk to their church, talk to their community about maybe adopting a village together. And everyone who's listening can email me at dov, D-O-V, at InnoAfrica, I-N-N-O, Africa.org, and can be in touch with me about getting involved. As we always talk about, Pastor, prayer for our success and yeah, Israel's ability as a whole to continue giving to the world, always, always uh, helpful. You go on the Facebook page of Innovation Africa and share its posts, spread the word to the world. Uh, when you hear people talking about Israel being a source of evil and lack of human rights and injustice, you now are equipped with an organization that's out there, Israeli organization, Israeli technology, just doing good, just helping people, just saving lives, just giving hope. And, and that's very helpful as well, as everyone works together to uh, defend and protect and share the good word about Israel. 
So I do encourage our Christian and Jewish listeners to Google Innovation Africa and see how you might be led by the Lord to participate. And what you're doing there is carrying out the biblical command to love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus called the second greatest commandment, the first greatest commandment, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. And you and the folks of Innovation Africa are living out this love of man to man, person to person. And when we transition to talk about this week's Torah portion, the Bible reading that Jews have been reading every week on Sabbath for 2,000 years, and this week's Torah portion comes from the book of Exodus, chapters 21 through 24. And in Hebrew, the title of this portion is Mishpatim, which means rules or ordinances or regulations. And if our listeners will recall that last week's Torah portion included Exodus chapter 20, that was the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Well, now here we are beginning in Exodus 21, and it's a further explanation. And the way I see it, Rabbi, is God gives these headlines, if you will, these topics of morality and righteousness and obedience in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. But then we go to the Lord and say, okay, God, I want to believe you and I want to obey you, but I need more. I need more detailed instructions. And that seems to be what this beginning of the portion is. Exodus 21 are very detailed instances. If this happens to your farm animal, if this happens to your crops, if this happens to your son or your daughter, if this happens to your servant, this is what you do in order to live a righteous life in the middle of a world that has conflict and has trouble. This is the way to walk in righteousness. That's how I see Exodus 21. Absolutely. And we also, by the way, echo your teachings about the significance of the laws between man and man and loving others like yourself. We have a saying that uh, this is the great rule of the Torah. And the uh, Talmud actually says that, you know, if all the great sage Hillel said that all of the Torah, all the Bible is all about uh, not doing to others what you wouldn't want to do done to yourself. And therefore, it's an absolute continuation of the revelation at Sinai, but going into much greater detail. Uh, as to all the ins and outs and setting up a civil society and if people hurt each other, what happens? What are the consequences? Who pays what? Even as far as uh, an indentured servant uh, in a world where uh, people had not slaves, but uh, servants in their homes had to treat them properly, uh, a real revolution at the time in a uncivilized world, all the rules that govern a civilized society and how people uh, should act towards uh, one another. And this is one case where there's no doubt, even if the ins and outs of the details of the rules uh, might not be shared by our faiths, the overall principle uh, is certainly one that we can agree to. When you get to Exodus chapter 23, the Lord makes very clear the expectation of the Jewish people in terms of how they come to worship him. And it says in Exodus 23, 14, three times a year, you shall celebrate a feast to me. And so what I'd like to talk about is to learn from the rabbi these pilgrimage festivals, these times when Jews would travel from around the world to first the tabernacle, later to the first temple later to the second temple. And Exodus 23, of course, comes after 21 and 22. So the connection here is how I live my daily life, how I interact with other people, how I deal with conflict with other people is part of my overall worship of the Lord. Again, if we use the words of Jesus, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus connected those two things together. We can connect those two things, loving God and loving other people. And so we move from the specific ordinances of chapters 21 and 22 to how do you worship the Lord specifically in chapter 23 there are these three festivals and in Hebrew you call them Pesach, Shavuot and Sukkot Passover and festival of weeks and and then festival of tabernacles so talk about these three festivals first of all the history of them in chapter 23 the giving of the commandment and then how do you live them out in a modern time. It's interesting. There are actually two different dimensions to these three festivals. On the one hand, each one corresponds to some aspect of the Exodus. Passover is the first one, which is the actual moment of the Exodus from Egypt and the celebration of our freedom from slavery in Egypt to be able to go worship God. Shavuot in our tradition is actually the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, of the Torah, what we read about last week. And then Sukkot is actually commemorating that the people of Israel, while they were in the desert, they either sat in booths or God himself protected them with the cloud of glory. And we reenact that and we show our faith in God and our ability to go outdoors and we actually live outdoors during that week. So there's a spiritual component in terms of the steps of the Exodus, but there's also an agricultural component where Passover is the celebration of the spring, of the crops growing at the end of the long rainy season. Shavuot, seven weeks later, is the harvest. And then after the harvest, all the crops were laid out in the field over the summer and were gathered into the homes in the beginning of the fall, and that's when the Feast of Tabernacles. So you both are to thank God. One is to thank God for something which happened historically to us as a people, And the other one is to thank God for the physical blessings that were given. And the way they're supposed to be celebrated is by going to Jerusalem. It's three times a year that people are expected to go reconnect, go give their thanks, go give their offerings. And there are writings from uh, Josephus and others of the incredible pilgrimage and seeing all the people of Israel coming and what Jerusalem was like at the time. And it's something which we sorely miss. We don't have that official pilgrimage Uh, without a temple. We certainly still, as a family, try to go to the closest we can get, which is the Western Wall. And Jerusalem is filled, thank God, with Jews and Christians uh, during the holidays, and especially the Feast of the Tabernacles. But we're still lacking that that ultimate level of worship with the temple. And maybe we don't spill in our times as we pray for daily. But it's still a time, even today, even without a temple, even for those not in Israel, of connection of taking those times to reconnect. A holiday for us, yes, we eat and we rejoice, but it's for a goal of of spiritual connection. And it's so critical in the lives that we live and the busyness and and so caught up in so many other things to have these days to be able to really connect spiritually. And that's why also I believe that this was established here in terms of the timing, because God is telling us, okay, you have all these laws, you have all these rules, you have your day-to-day life, and you got to keep to them, but don't forget what it's all about. And that's what these three festivals are, are ultimately for. The historical question is, if you lived in the Galilee, if you lived far away from Jerusalem, to travel there would take days or weeks to walk. You had to leave your farm. You had to leave your animals. You weren't making a, a salary. You weren't selling your wares for money. This was a time when you would put your work on hold your income on hold to make a travel to the temple or the tabernacle and you would trust God that he would provide for you 
and keep your home safe and your land safe and your animals safe while you would travel there and then go back. So this was several weeks out of a whole year to make the long journey three times. I'll go a step further. The command, is the obligation, is actually for the men to go to Jerusalem. Of course, the women are encouraged to come. But, you know, there are women sometimes that are pregnant and expecting a child or have just had a child. So there's an understanding that the women can't all always come. Now imagine, Israel, just like today, is surrounded on all sides by enemies. It always has been. Imagine if today we said all the males are leaving wherever they are throughout the land, and they're all coming to Jerusalem. There's no doubt that Israel would be attacked immediately if we didn't have our soldiers and the borders and all the men were gathered in one city and the, who knows what would happen, God forbid, to the women and children that were left behind. And there was a promise that was made. As we go to be with God in Jerusalem, the cities will be safe, your homes will be safe, even though everything's evacuated or just with women and children left behind. And that promise is not just made, but was fulfilled because we know historically they came and they kept coming. And it's an amazing thing to see on the one hand a promise which only a God can make and to experience the promise fulfilled. And that's again because of these people taking this act of faith and leaving their homes and going to Jerusalem. One more historical point before I ask you the modern worship equivalent. For our Christian audience, I'll remind them of two famous Bible stories that they know from the New Testament. Luke chapter 2, verse 41, it says about Jesus, his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And that goes into the famous story that Christians will be aware of when Jesus is at age 12 in the temple talking with the religious scholars. And he says, I must be about my father's business. And so when Jesus is in Jerusalem at age 12, while he's being raised up north in the Galilee, he is living out this commandment to go to the temple, to go to Jerusalem for Passover. That's the famous age 12 story of Jesus. And then if you were to look at the last week of his life before the crucifixion, including Matthew 26, when we have the famous Last Supper story, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. Well, the meal they're having is the Passover meal. It's called the Seder meal. And so Jesus, as a Jew, we believe the Son of God, but a man who lived on the earth as a Jew, he lived out these ordinances that we're learning about in Exodus 21, 2, and 23, and 24. Jesus lived these out himself, and we see that in New Testament stories. So that's the historical reference. Rabbi, my question for you now is, you mentioned it, but I'd like you to elaborate a little more. You don't have a temple now. We believe there will be a third temple. You as a Jew, I as a Christian, we both believe it. We both believe that in the Messianic time, the temple will be rebuilt. And that might be very soon. It might be in our lifetimes. But you don't have a temple to go to. So talk about how do you live out these commands without a specific house of worship to do the sacrifices in. So one of the things that we've been taught is that when the temple is destroyed, our synagogues, our biblical seminaries, they all become a miniature temple. So those are days that you'll find us spending a lot of time in synagogue and prayers. Instead of offerings and sacrifices, the prayers take the place. And we even have the prophets talk about how our lips replace the animals that were brought as sacrifice. Our homes, our tables are viewed as altars. And as we sit around the table and sing the spiritual songs and share words of the Bible and spend time with our families, that's also recreating at a certain level things that took place in the temple. So we try to find those replacements. Uh, we certainly have commandments that are not temple-related, such as eating the matzah, the, uh, the special uh, unleavened bread on Passover, 
sitting in these booths that we call Sukkot on Tabernacles. So we have laws that we and customs that we keep, but all of that is done with a, a little lump in our throats, and we recognize that this is not the complete service. But we will not forget, and we will not cease, and we will continue fulfilling the the commands that we can about these holidays, even when we're in the situation without the temple. And therefore, they're still very festive and rejoicing times, still times that are filled with spirituality and very important to recharge our spiritual batteries. But with that caveat that it's not a complete celebration the way the Bible commands. I'd like us to look at a verse and ask the rabbi to help us understand kosher a little bit more. Exodus 23, verse 19 says, You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a kid in the milk of its mother. Kosher is more than do not mix meat and dairy, but I understand that the source of the teaching, do not mix milk and dairy, comes from this verse. Help us understand it a little bit. So it's important just to give a word of background, and that is the Bible itself, as you read what we call the Torah, it's written in a very concise form. It's written in a form where the, the verses don't give very much detail at all, even when we think it goes into detail. It's not really giving us uh, that much detail. And therefore, we believe and we're taught that at, at Sinai, there's a tradition that was given to Moses by God explaining all the laws and explaining uh, the verses. And that includes what we call the oral Torah. That includes the dietary laws. The Torah itself gives a few outlines here and there, uh, mentions animals that are kosher, animals that are not kosher, but in terms of detail uh, and how animals ritual slaughter, uh, all of those things are not included in the Bible, but they're in the oral Torah. And our oral tradition, which was passed down from generation to generation, ultimately recorded in writing what we call the Mishnah and the discussion of that in the Talmud, all of that, when it comes to the laws of meat and milk, are learned from this verse. This verse that you just quoted, which is repeated three different times in the Bible, it tells us not to uh, cook the kids in the mother's milk. That command is understood to mean don't eat milk and meat, don't cook meat and milk together, don't eat them together, and don't get any pleasure, any benefit from a mixture of the two of them together. So very far from what the actual words seem to say, and that's part of the power of the oral tradition, that we're able to get insight into what God's commands actually mean. And like I said, we, we are very, very firm. This was transmitted from Moses to Joshua, and the chain continues down until it's actually recorded in what we call the Mishnah and the Talmud. And therefore, just so the listeners can understand, we do not eat any mixture of meat and milk. It's called in Hebrew, basar v'chalav. We have separate utensils for meat and milk. We actually go even further, and we wait after having meat before eating any kind of milk product to create even further distance. So a huge number of laws that are learned and taught based on just this one sort of obscure verse. And as we near the end of our discussion about this week's Torah portion, which I'll remind our listeners covers Exodus chapters 21 through 24, I'd like to ask the rabbi to help me understand a verse, and it's Exodus 24, verse 8. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And according to my research, Rabbi, this is the only time in the Old Testament when people were sprinkled with blood. 
as opposed to on the altar or on the ground or somewhere else. The only time that people were sprinkled with blood, and this I think is a very important covenant, and I want you to explain it for us because I think it has a very important connection to Christian doctrine. So help me understand this verse, please. Sure. We understand that the covenant that we have with God is is a very deep one. Um, it's one which we have to be willing God to give our lives for. Sadly, many have done so, but that's the strength of that commitment. That is something that a person is even willing to uh, give up their life for, that, that life is for the service of God, and therefore, if necessary, uh, we do give up our lives. And it's a symbolism which is important to us, for sure. You know, ultimately, we, we have a covenant of a circumcision, we have covenants related to sacrifices. These are all sort of the, I'm giving of myself for God and, and, and cementing that relationship. It's not something, to be honest with you, which plays out very much in daily religious practice. It's not something which is talked about very much in terms of the blood component per se, but it's what it represents, which is our willingness to give up our lives. And we do say in the, in the Shema prayer every single day, which is a big part of our prayers, there we do say, uh, you know, even with all of our souls, with our lives, in terms of uh, our worship of God. And uh, that's the way we understand it. That's the symbolism that it represents. And that's been played out over thousands of years of, sadly, of Jewish people losing their lives because of their commitment to their faith. I did mention earlier Matthew 26 in regard to Jesus being in the upper room for the Last Supper, the Passover meal. Also, the same story is told in Luke chapter 22 and in Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus took the cup of the Passover meal and he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we see a lot of power in the imagery of the blood of Jesus, that the covenant that God makes with us is that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so we see a connection between the blood sacrifice like the lamb in the Passover meal and the lamb of God who is Jesus. And so we make a connection there as well. So, Rabbi, as we come to the end of our conversation, you are in Africa. And I apologize to our listeners. We haven't had the greatest phone signal in this conversation today. But it's because we're literally all over the world in the middle of this recording. Rabbi, wrap it all up for us. I'm here in my church in Texas. You are in Africa carrying out the work of Innovation Africa. We're studying the Torah portion about God making a covenant with the people, and we get to worship Him personally. Wrap this all up. Well, I have to tell you that there's no greater sign of, of strength and of faith uh, than what we're experiencing right now, being on different parts of the world and, and, and being able to connect uh, spiritually. I, I think, for me, symbolically, that represents the notion that there's no such thing as distance from God. There's no such thing as distance from one another. Uh, there are things that bind human beings to God and bind human beings to one another, which can never be never be broken. And that's very much the elements of this week's portion as well, very much the elements of Innovation Africa, people helping each other, the commandments of between man and God and man and man. And uh, I'm so thrilled that we're able to have this conversation on a weekly basis, regardless of what life circumstances come our way. So I'm so thankful that we're able to uh, maintain that and that we live in a time when we're able to share spirituality and, and learning, regardless of the circumstances. 
it is a great privilege each week to gather as friends to study the Word of God. So I encourage our Christian and Jewish listeners to read this week's Torah portion, Exodus chapters 21 through 24. And I encourage you again to visit the website, look it up, Innovation Africa, to see why Rabbi Lippman is in Uganda right now. And we look forward to you being back in the Holy Land next week. I'll be there in a few weeks to see you personally. Always great to visit with you, my friend. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Blessings to you. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.